I deployed to Iraq in 2003 and then to Afghanistan in 2007. Second in command of a group of eight men out on a routine foot patrol. And on the way back into our camp, I stood on and detonated an improvised explosive device, which instantly tore off uh, both my legs above the knee and my right arm above the elbow. And trying to figure out what I was looking at, I think my brain couldn't process it. My hand was actually in pretty good order. And for some reason, I picked it up, kind of held it in front of my face, turned it around a little bit, dropped it into the sand, and then just let out this huge scream of like frustration and anger when I realized it hurt more in week five and six, I think, of recovery than it did in the moment. Would you go back and erase that day? Hello and welcome back to the Not So Fit Couple podcast with your hosts, Lucy Halden and Benjamin Halden. For those who are watching on Spotify or YouTube, you may be wondering why we are sitting next to each other today. It's because we have an awesome guest on. And to say that you guys are in for an episode full of magic would be an understatement. As soon as we finished this episode, Cal said to me, that is one of the best episodes or the best episode we have recorded. And with a bank of nearly 200 episodes, that is saying something. A Royal Marines commando at the age of 18, he is the first triple amputee to survive the Afghanistan war, losing both legs and his right arm to an improvised explosion device. He's a husband and a father, and he refused to accept life of never walking again and even went on to compete in high-level sport. He is a, a decorated veteran with an MBA along a multitude of other accolades to add to the list of world records and challenges and events that he's overcome. And I think this episode's warrants you listen and give it your full attention. There's a lot you can learn from it. It's inspiring. It's moving. It's emotional. So um, please leave your thoughts. We are super grateful to have Mark on today to share his time and his story with us. Enjoy, guys. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for jumping on, buddy. Thank you guys for having me it's on. It's great to have you. I'm going to ask you... A very difficult question to, to start us off with. Mm-hmm. Um, and then afterwards, I'm going to tell you why. Okay. So knowing what you know now and the events that have unfolded since Christmas Eve 2007. Yes. Would you go back and erase that day? No. Not that day. No. The reason why? Mm. And you probably already know what I'm going to say. Because it's corny and it's cliche, but it's absolutely true, is that the the struggles and the challenges and the adversity that I went through, as shit as they were at the time and as hard as they were at the time, forced me to grow to be a, a bigger, better person and to be the man that I am today. Now, would I be that man had that not had happened? I don't know. Uh, probably to a degree but not fully. But, you know, everything happens for a reason. This happened to me for a reason. I survived it for a reason. I've got to where I am now for a reason. So, no, I, I actually, when I look back, I am quite grateful for some of the challenges that that life and, and this has thrown my way since. And the reason that I asked you that, it was, it was due to a conversation that we had with a, another podcast guest called Mo Gaudet. Okay. Uh, he wrote the book called Soul for Happy. He's the old CBO of Google. Um, wow. And he made up this thing called the Eraser Test, which I'm just going to read uh, from his book, which is basically a thought experiment developed 
uh, where a moment is pinpointed in someone's life. The moment must be when something really bad happened. Um, if we had built a magic eraser and were able to go back and erase that event so that it had never happened, would you use it and would you erase the, is the event? Um, and bearing in mind, if you erase the event, you will erase everything that has happened as a result of the event, mm -hmm. every friend you made as a result, every experience you had had as a result, every learning that you'd had as a result, and every resilience you developed as a result. And I was I was reflecting on that last year because I had a bit of a, a bad year myself with uh, an operation I had early on for testicular cancer and a car crash at the back end of last year that me and Carl were lucky to walk away from. And I was reflecting on like thinking I probably wouldn't have erased them just because of the events that unfolded because of it. And I often view some of those things now and those problems as, as springboards just into different directions. Mm -hmm. That's why I was interested to hear your your take on it. Yeah, I mean, I think people as a whole now, and it's a bit of a generalization, but they tend to shy away from challenging adversity a lot of people. When really, in certain guises, it's a bit of a gift. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Because it forces you to become like almost your full potential. You know, you never really know what you're capable of of doing mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, whatever it is, until you're really in a situation where you have no other option than to push yourself through it. Does that make sense? Yeah, we spoke about this before, about how pain can be an ally to rediscover your true potential. Mm. That way you would never notice it. Mm. And, and losing at things and failing at things and not getting the things that you want, they're all a springboard to, to do better, to be better. It just doesn't feel like that in the, t in the moment. You know, it, it sucks in the moment, lots of it. But you kind of have to reframe a lot of these negative experiences you have in life. And take them from, and this is this is exactly what it was for me at the beginning. Why me? This is shit. This isn't fair. To where can I go from here? Who can I be from here? What can I achieve from here? Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You just got to look mm -hmm. at it with a different set of questions. If you're okay with talking about it, would you be able to tell our listeners and go back to, I think, was it Christmas Eve? Christmas Eve 2007. 2007. Um, would you be able to share with the listeners exactly what we're talking about today? Yeah, so I'm a, I'm a former Royal Marines Commando. Uh, joined the military in 2001. I deployed to Iraq in 2003 and then to Afghanistan in 2007. Now, the the deployment to Afghanistan was supposed to be six months. It's quite standard for UK troops. My deployment was cut short uh, three months into it on Christmas Eve 2007 when I was second in command of a group of eight men out on a routine foot patrol. And on the way back into our camp, I stood on and detonated an improvised explosive device, which instantly tore off uh, both my legs above the knee and my right arm above the elbow. So not the best Christmas I've ever had. Um, I had the very unenviable title of the UK's first triple amputee from the conflict, but I'd survived it. P people had unfortunately been injured in a, in a similar way prior to me, but unfortunately they, they never survived. Uh, so I was the first one to survive, which made the recovery, the rehabilitation, and you know my entire life after that very challenging. 
So in essence, you're a bit of a lab rat with... I was, I know, I was absolutely a lab rat. I had no, no one had trodden the path before uh, with anything from, and I'll tell you some stories in a minute, but from, from the minute that thing exploded all the way through to the end of my rehab, so many things were being done for the first time. I was an in the moment lab rat with my life hanging in the balance. It's kind of insane when you think back and you reflect on it and you know, over the years, I've met more and more and more and more people. And there were there were literally thousands of people involved in a chain of events that happened from the minute I stood on that to leaving the military in, in 2010. With, without those people making either minor or major contributions to my life, then it could have gone in, in, a, in a very different direction. You know, so the, the day itself was intense and, and terrifying. I, I detonated this improvised explosive device initially thought that we were under attack from uh, a group of enemy because if you can try and imagine what the terrain is like in Afghanistan it's very sandy and, and very dusty so when the explosion happened this giant dust cloud was created so I couldn't see what was going on I could hear everyone around me all the lads shouting trying to figure out what had happened and trying to figure out where the attack came from or, or what we thought was an attack but I couldn't see anything now where I was I was I actually knelt on this thing I was about to get on my stomach to give uh what we call overwatch which was a form of protection to another group of men the rest of my section the other seven men were all in their positions and I was the last one to take mine so as I put my right knee on the floor I, I knelt on and detonated this device so this dust cloud was created but I knew that behind me about 600 meters to my rear, beneath me, because we were on some high ground, there was like a small rectangular forestry block, like a, like a bunch of trees, and everything else around that area was just flat mud fields. So in my mind, in all that chaos, I thought if we're being attacked, that's the only place anyone with any common sense is going to launch an attack. I thought it was like a mortar or a rocket or something. So in my mind, I was saying, turn around, Mark, turn around. ID where the enemy is, start shooting. When you start shooting, the lads will see what, where you're aiming. Mm. They'll all start shooting it. And about 150 meters away in the camp, we had a HMG machine gun that could have, it would literally tear a forest in half. So I thought as soon as someone sees it, they'll grab that and then we can get out. Probably four or five times after in my mind saying, turn around, Mark, turn around, ID the enemy, neutralize the threat. Even though I couldn't see because of this dust cloud, I just knew that my body wasn't doing what my mind was telling it to do. You just know, right? You can mm. you kind of done that mm. movement a million times and then all of a sudden it feels strange. And I didn't really know what to do. So I just waited, you know, and, and it's very strange when your adrenaline spikes to that level, like everything outside you goes in slow motion, but everything inside speeds up to like a thousand mile an hour. It's a very conflicting set of emotions that you, you're trying to deal with, especially with the uncertainty of, what was going on and, and where this attack came from. But I knew that even though I was trying to turn around, that my body wasn't doing what I was telling it to. So I just carried on waiting. And I thought if I wait for this dust cloud to disappear, I can look around, I can see what's going on, get a better understanding of the situation then make some very quick decisions on the ground to try and get everybody out there safely. So I carried on waiting. This dust cloud got about six inches from the floor, hit the ground, and then disappeared. And then as it did, I looked down to where my legs should have been and they 
they had both been completely ripped off. Not above the knees at this point. And this is going to sound very weird and a bit gross, and I apologise if it if it puts you off eating meat. <laughs> but <laughs> have you ever had a set of like spare ribs or something where they're, they're cooked so well you can slide the bone out? Yeah. All right, so that's what my tibia and fibula looked like. They were still there, still attached, but no trace of flesh, muscle. It just incinerated because of the heat, I imagine. And it almost looked like you could just grab me at the knee and snap. And I've got photographs of it on, on my laptop at so home. your feet are still there as well? No feet. Okay. Both feet dis disappeared. Tibia and fibias on one side were still there. The other side were pretty much destroyed. Um, and then just, you know, you got to imagine my thighs just torn open with just blood and claret and, and all this fluid just pouring out. And it was, it's very surreal. You know, you said you had a car crash earlier. You probably know what I mean then. When you, you're in a traumatic incident and it doesn't feel real, you, you know, I wasn't in any pain either, which made it harder for my brain to kind of process. No, no pain that, at all. No. I, yeah, that's that. I can't get my head around that. It's just the way your body deals with it. Like, if I got a piece of paper now, right, and, and said, I'm going to give you a paper cut, you anticipate it and you'll feel the pain. But you must have gone for a day before, looked at your hand and been like, oh, I didn't realise I did that. Yeah. You didn't feel it, yeah. right? Because you didn't know it happened. It's kind of the same. Yeah. I'm always interested in that that, that segment of when people have been in combat or fight or fight or flight mode mm -hmm. because they had the car crash was similar because everything slowed down. I felt I had more time. Yeah. I'd been uh, in a fight with a guy with a knife before. Everything, I felt everything it's slowed clear down. clear as well, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I, I felt like I could move quicker mm -hmm. and read what he was doing. Mm -hmm. So I'm always interested in kind of what's going through people's minds or what you're experiencing yeah. whilst whilst in that mode. I mean, I, d I just sat there and, and it was probably like a second, maybe two, but it felt longer just looking and trying to figure out what I was looking at. I think my brain couldn't process it because it's so graphic. Mm. And then, you know, like I said, like two seconds after I saw what I saw, I started thinking about the rest of my team. So I, I snapped out of it almost instantly and went to look around to see if I could see them. And as I looked over my right shoulder, I saw the guy in charge, a good friend of mine called Corporal Sean Helsby. We went through training together back in 2001 and his his eyes were massive. His face was uh, drained of color. He was clearly in shock. So I'm trying to piece this together. Like, what have I looked at? Why does he look so scared and shocked? What's happening? I don't understand. And I went to look back to my legs. And as I got to about the three o'clock position, I saw my arm like lying in the sand and it was still attached to my body. But from my bicep down to my wrist, my entire arm was torn open. Uh, the upper and the lower bone in my arm was shattered into a thousand pieces. It was completely unsalvageable. And my hand was actually in pretty good order. And for some reason I picked it up kind of held it in front of my face, turned it around a little bit, dropped it into the sand, and then just let out this huge scream of like frustration and anger when I realized we weren't under attack. I was the guy that, that stood on and detonated this improvised explosive device. Now, if you could write down what is the worst possible scenario to evacuate a casualty from, th this was it. Because when we went when we went firm, we were on a high piece of ground. I've read the report that was written after because we were working with some American Special Forces guys and they 
one of their jobs was to go in and clear the area and write a report of it. There were six of these devices around me, which was an anti-personnel mine with a warhead of 107, 107 millimeter Chinese rocket on top. So there were six of these other, six or seven of these other devices around me. The one that I detonated created a 12 foot by 15 foot crater. Um, you know, we're just in this ridiculously dangerous scenario where getting me out is going to be nearly impossible. And to make it a little bit worse, the way we're trained is that in that scenario, the other seven men in my section are trained not to run in to help me immediately in case they detonate another device. So they've all got pre-assigned tasks, which they did to the highest level. One guy instantly was on the radio calling in a, a casualty evacuation. I had a 19-year-old guy on his belly with a bayonet and what they do is they prod the ground for other devices and they put little markers left and right so when the medic gets there he can run straight in safely oh, wow. we had another guy who coordinates like all around the fence in case you know someone comes over here with ak-47s and they've got a fight with them they all did it perfectly and because of that the medic did get to me quite quickly he came out of the camp climbed up to this high feature jumped in this crater gave me some morphine put tourniquets on my legs asked me to do the one on my arm to keep me conscious because I was in and out of consciousness at this point. Put me on a stretcher. He had to kind of, because part of my right leg was still attached and my arm was, they had to like scoop everything up, put it on my belly, put me on this, it was like a bed sheet with handles to get me out of this massive crater, then down off this massive high feature into a vehicle. The vehicle then starts driving and you just got to kind of imagine what an, an Afghan dirt road looks like. It's not a comfortable drive. Mm -hmm. So I was getting thrown about in the back, smashing my head off of stuff. And then as we're going up the hill to go back into the camp, because of the, the poor terrain, you had to be quite aggressive driving, like left and right because of potholes. And as we hit one, the, the medic fell out the back. Oh and then I went out after him. But as the bottom of my back hit the... You fell out of the... Half out. Half. As the bottom of my back hit the tailgate of this vehicle, the guy driving swung around, reached out to grab something to hold me in and ended up grabbing my femur bone. That was in my right leg uh, to kind of hold me in and half in, half out this vehicle. Now, he left the medic because the, the other group of men that we were with, that we were providing overwatch for, were at the bottom of the hill. So he was safe, the medic. He had eight heavily armed men looking after him. They drove me into camp to the helicopter landing site. The last thing that I remember is this Chinook helicopter coming down to land, this huge sandstorm getting created from the propeller blades and the heat from the exhaust beating down on me in the back of this vehicle. And then I blacked out. How long um, for? From that point, the next thing I remember was, a, was the 28th of December, four days later. Really? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I can, I can tell you a little bit about what happened on the back of the helicopter because I've met the whole team since. Uh, I, don't, I don't remember so any of it. bit you don't remember. Did, I don't remember any of it. No. Did, did you, was there any point when you were thinking about, I'm, I'm going to die here? Yeah, absolutely. But as bizarre as it sounds, I was all right with that. I was, a lot of people, you know, I've told this story a lot of times and people assume that in that situation, you're full of fear and panic about dying and I'm sure for some people it is that way and there was a little bit of that but my experience was that initially in terms of emotions I was angry and, and I felt shame and I felt guilt 
because I put my friends in a situation where they could potentially be killed because of what I did. There was no fear of dying it immediately. That was my first thought was I've, I'm a dickhead. I've put these lads' life in danger now and if they die, it's, it's on me. But then when the helicopter came to land and I, it's like, imagine the most exhausted you've ever been in your life and then times that by like a thousand. That's what it feels like. And you're almost happy. You can feel yourself blacking out. It's like you're falling asleep, but it's relaxing and it's quite peaceful. And I, I would have been happy to go then. You know, I thought what I was doing was was honourable and I thought it would have been a good way to go. And I only had uh, one kid at the time then. And I thought, well, she's going to grow up. She could be proud. Do you know what I mean? Um, I'm good to go. And then I, I blacked out. And as far as I knew, that was it. But then I woke up four days later. They they revived me on the back of a helicopter. And, uh, you know, this still amazes me now, telling this all, all this story, but... When I got on the back of this helicopter, there's a way you prioritise casualties in the military and in particular in a war in a war zone, in a scenario like this. And if you've got a guy that's dead and a guy that's dying, as harsh as it sounds, you've got to ignore the dead guy and put all your attention on the guy that's dying because you don't want two dead guys. Mm -hmm. So when they felt me for a pulse, I didn't have one. They couldn't get any fluids into me because all my veins had collapsed. And when they put an oxygen mask on me, they said it should have steamed up the show I was breathing but it didn't so they said right this dude's dead leave him and they got to work on another guy that was injured he had shrapnel in his back and shrapnel in his tricep so it wasn't life-threatening <clears throat> when one of the medics walked past me to get some equipment to go back and work on the other guy he said that my eyes started to flutter which to them meant my heart was still beating so he alerted some of the other medics and they came over to get to work on me to try and bring me back now three days before this incident, whoever is in charge of the military medical world had given the green light for this new technique to go ahead where if you can't get fluids in somebody's veins, you can drill into their tibia and fibula and administer fluids that way. Problem being, <laughs> one side didn't have a tibia or fibula and none of it was, was working the way it should do. So these medics, and you've got to bear in mind, they're on the back of a Chinook helicopter in a war zone this is not an operating theatre. It's the helicopter's going from left to right because of the risk of getting shot from the ground with RPGs and AK-47s. There's sand and dust everywhere. And effectively, there's this massive mangled slab of meat in me on a table, like the worst I've ever seen. And they had to make some really quick decisions about how they were going to try and save me. So what they ended up doing was taking two medical drills and drilling into the front and back of my hip bone and then administering fluids that way. So the first time it didn't work because they said they didn't pull my skin tight enough. Are you experiencing any pain at this point? I don't remember any of this. Okay. Yeah, Not a thing. I was out, <laughs> completely out. But then they said the second time they put the line in, it bit, the fluids went in. Three, three and a half minutes later, I was awake and responsive and apparently coherently answering the questions that they were asking me. So I don't remember any of it, but... Uh, they said that once they got the fluids in me, they, they brought me back round and then they took me to, the, the helicopter was going back to another camp called Camp Bastion where they had a field hospital. And then the surgeons that were on duty that day had a look at me and in a tent, because uh, that's all they had back then, uh, that was their operating theatre, they, they put me in there, uh, put me under with drugs and medication and took off both my legs above the knee and my arm above the elbow. So, so when you're in and out of consciousness, you're pretty much in death's grasp. Mm -hmm. 
Can you remember anything being different whilst kind of in that state in terms of hearing anything, seeing anything, feeling anything? Because you often hear stories of people who have been on the, the near-death experience and they have sometimes vivid thoughts or things that they've heard or see during those periods. Uh, like I said just now, you know, it was just a feeling of peace and, and calm. You know, I mean, I wasn't when when I blacked out. I wasn't afraid. I wasn't scared of of dying. I was just at peace, and I, it's just it's hard to explain. The the only thing I can compare it to is if you are absolutely knackered, and like the only thing you want to do is just go to sleep. It's like that, but times a thousand. You're completely drained, completely exhausted, and you just want to peacefully drift off. The only difference is this time you don't wake up, mm-hmm. um, but because of those medics, I did. But yeah, I, I, you don't see like I didn't see no flashy light or anything like that or, yeah. or any of that stuff. When you so you spoke about then it was very peaceful and mm. you've kind of accepted I'm gonna die is what it is, and the way you spoke about it is you, you've come to terms with it. When you then four days later wake up in mm-hmm. hospital. Is that almost, I imagine it's obviously the biggest shock, but was there any part of you that was annoyed that you, you hadn't died when you did? Not immediately. Yeah. So the first memory I have is, again, being extremely exhausted to the point where I couldn't open my eyes. I wanted to, and everything in my body was telling me to, but I didn't have the strength to open my eyes. I could just remember... You know, if you if you close your eyes now, we've got these lights on. You you know there are lights on, right? It's like that, but from the hospital ceiling, I remember kind of knowing that there were lights on. I could hear people around me. I had an oxygen mask on, and I started choking on this feeding tube. So they, they pulled it out, and I could hear people. But everything echoed. Like, every time someone said something once, I had it three or four times. And I think that's because I was on a lot of drugs and medication. And um, I could hear my now wife's voice. Uh, stood beside me. Uh, that's the only one I recognised. And uh, this is the, the mushy part of the story. But I actually, because when I heard her, I proposed to her. And I could hardly even speak. I was just mumbling. And then she kept on saying, what did you say? Did you? What did you say? Did you ask me to marry you? And I, she said, you just gave me this little crooked smile and then passed back out again. And I oh just was God. so tired. I just passed out. And then the next day, I think they reduced my medication to bring me out but not out. So I, I spent a week in intensive care uh, on heavy medication, day by day, being weaned off of it, bit at a time to bring me more and more into the real world. And it was crazy, like the hallucinations I had. Do you remember the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you remember Will Smith had that kind of, I don't know what they call it, like a, he had that fade haircut with a block yeah, on top. Yeah. So three of them come to visit me, right? One of them had like a small block, one of them had a medium one, and one did like, like almost like a tree for a haircut. And uh, they just were hanging out with me in, in my hospital room, talking to well, me. Did you hallucinate that? Me with three Will Smiths. <laughs> and then, I mean, there's worse people yeah, to hang out with. I know. And then these these guys came in on forklift trucks and they're like putting am- ammunition at the end of my bed. And I'm like, what are you doing? You can't be doing that. This is the hospital. Oh my God. And then I became friends with a, like an eight foot bottle of Heinz ketchup. <laughs> that was in the corner of my room. And it was crazy, but... What it what it did, like these these drugs and this medication, like the first day I woke up, I remember just thinking I had lost some toes and fingers. And then the next day, I had a bit of a better understanding of the situation. The next day, a little bit better. 
And it was almost like for those first seven days, each day I was understanding my situation a bit more and more. Until on the seventh day, I pulled my my right arm out from under the bed sheet to, to scratch my nose. And I'd been doing this for the six days prior and it was working because I was right hand dominant. And then I started like giggling. And then I said, what are you laughing for? I said, oh, I'm hallucinating again. It looks like my arm's falling off. And she just looked at me with that look as if to say, uh-oh, how do I tell him? And she didn't have to tell me. That, that was like... What, what you knew from the look that... Just giving me that look was kind of like, okay, right, I know now, right? After these six, seven days, I now understand that I'm missing both my legs above the knee and my right arm above the elbow. Because it was all, it was very, very fuzzy and, and strange that, that period. But like day seven, I had a full understanding of my injuries. And then they moved me out of Barnes and, uh, sorry, out of intensive care up to Barnes and Plastics to a high dependency room where they uh, continued to, to wean me off the medication. So I was more kind of semi-independent with morphine and stuff. And then I could start to uh, live again in the real world. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, so yeah, it was intense. Did you, did you start to experience pain then through your body post that period of, of weaning off the, the meds and stuff as well? Yeah, it, it hurt more in week five and six, I think, of recovery than it did in the moment, just because you are so sore and tender. And I had three surgeries as well in that first six-week period. And they call them, I think they call debridling, which from what they explained to me is basically where they get almost like a wire brush and just scrub all the dirt and sand out of all your wounds to clean out uh, any infection risks and stuff like that. So I had three of those. And so I was very sore and very tender for a long time. And then they give you a, a little button where you can, whenever, I don't know if it's a placebo or what, and you just hit it and it'll give you a shot of morphine when yeah, you're in pain. Well, yeah. I don't know if it actually worked or if it, you know, cause I pressed it a lot. Um, but I think you only get like one shot every hour or something like that. I don't know. But yeah. And then, you know, you become more and more aware of your situation and you try to figure it out and create some sort of plan and get some information from people about what life's going to be like now that you're, you know, I was 24 years old, 24 years old with my dominant arm gone and both my legs, you know, so it was rough. That first six weeks were, were pretty intense. I had the the almost textbook talk from the doctor, like you're going to spend your life in a wheelchair. Um, he explained to me that, so th this guy had been working in amputations for 33 years. This is January, 2008. And he had never met anybody who had one leg missing above the knee that didn't not use a wheelchair, you know, because prosthetics were so painful. They're so difficult to use and they take so much energy that he'd never met anyone in 33 plus years with just one leg missing that had success with prosthetics. So he said, you know, you got both your legs missing and your dominant arm, you're screwed. And and then just kind of left me. Um, Did that fuel the fire more for you to be like? No, that made me want to kill myself. Really? <laughs> yeah. And and I remember being very angry and I turned my phone off and I didn't have any visitors. And it's about three or four days later, the, the medication just messes up all your, your sleep rhythms and everything like that. So you'd find yourself wide awake at three, four in the morning you know, and you'd be, that's a bit gross, but you know, constipated and stuff like that. And, and I remember waking up one night and calling for a bedpan and the nurse brought it in and I'm kind of in the middle of doing my business and thinking about life and just how shit it all was. And uh, I, I, 
I don't ever make light of this. It might sound like I am. I'm not. I'm just telling you what was going mm -hmm. through my head at the time. But I remember kind of almost laughing to myself thinking, you know, if I wanted to take my life, I can't even cut my own wrists. Because <laughs> how do you do it on one hand? And I kind of, I remember it's like three in the morning and I'm trying to take a dump on this bedpan, like laughing at myself, like, oh my God, you can't even do that now, Mark. And But that kind of snapped me out of it a little bit. You know, there's a bit of the military dark humour came in there then. And then I think two days after that, I actually had a visit from a, an army guy who lost both his legs in a rack above the knee. And uh, he was doing some pretty cool stuff and he told me all about it. And that was the point when I was like, okay, cool. All right, we're good to go. Like, if this guy can do it, I know I've got another challenge with the arm, but if this guy has achieved this, then there's no reason why I can't either. So got out of hospital after six weeks, went to rehab and just went at it. So what, what does that entail? So you, you then go to rehab and you're completely relearning to walk. And so with the prosthetics above the knee, mm. far less common, is it because it's more painful to have to wear prosthetics and to be able to walk again? It's just harder, people just give up. It's a lot harder. A lot harder. Like every joint you lose, so because I've lost both my knees, mm -hmm. it makes the whole game a lot harder. I have to walk using my glutes, my hips, my lower back, all these muscles that I think as an able-bodied person, I took for granted. And, you know, you go to a gym and you see people training like squats and bent and all the big muscles, right? But, you know, as a byproduct of that, you'll train the smaller ones, but they won't focus on them. Now, I had to retrain my entire body to build and strengthen the smaller muscles in like my glute and my hips and all that kind of stuff. It, and I did that starting in hospital. Um, with kind of like balance exercises. I had a table tennis bat and a balloon and I had to sit on the end of a bed and engage my core and just, you know, start as soon as I could. But that's what it's like when you walk without knees. You've got to do it all from, from your glutes and your core. What were those first steps like? Horrendous. I, I literally, I remember thinking, I had to wait a little while because I've got a huge chunk of flesh missing out my inner left thigh. And I had barons all down my back and, you know, scarring like this on my arm. Mm. And if I jumped straight into prosthetics, I may have injured myself and then put my rehab back even further. So I had to be very patient. So I did all the prep work, like I said, like the rehab in anticipation of getting legs. And my mindset was kind of like, oh, I'm a Royal Marine. I'm fit as fuck. Give me the legs and get out my way. Mm. I massively underestimated it. Like the... You know, a set of parallel bars about five meters long. I did that once and was exhausted. Took them off, went to sleep. Like it, take, it takes a double above knee amputee, anywhere between 300 and 500% more energy to do anything than an able-bodied person. So when I, if I'm out on stage, for example, giving an hour long presentation, it would be like you doing it, but jogging with your knees up high for an hour while trying to present. That's what it feels, that's what it, it's not, yeah. I've obviously conditioned, my mm -hmm. body's conditioned over the yeah. years to, to adapt to that. But in the beginning, it was brutal. Just standing on a spot. I never for, even think about things like that. You know, when you, no one you does, man. comedians or people speak, it's just, I guess it's it, massively hard to empathize with that. But hearing you speak about it now, it makes complete, complete sense. I used to come off stage after giving a talk looking like Lee Evans. <laughs> just covered in sweat you know because it is so much hard work just to stand on the spot and, and to get around everywhere and to negotiate obstacles going up and down stairs so I used to get so angry if I was out walking and people would see me and they want me to move out their way and I'm like dude do you know how much energy this takes me just mm -hmm. to change direction slightly it's like moving a 
what are they called? Big ship, container ship. Yeah. It takes about yeah. 70 miles for it to turn around. That's what it's like for me walking. <laughs> you know, I can't just turn on the spot. How, how? What else that maybe you or other people take for granted for? What else has changed in your day-to-day That's life true. that maybe you don't even think about now because you've just become accustomed to it with habits? But what what really kind of, at the start, relearn that process did you really have to take on board and work on? Well, getting up every day and putting prosthetics on. Like in the beginning, it took me an hour, 45 minutes. And I was sweating like I just in a workout. Just, so just to put them on? Just to put them on. Why is that? Just because you've got to get them on right. Mm. Or else they're all twisted and torn. And if you don't get them on right, you might have a bit of skin that maybe is pinching. And then for the rest of the day, that's just going to be pinching all the time. You know, and over the years, you develop strategies and techniques and, and habits and routines to do that quicker and you know your body adjusts as well so those things become less common but even even now you know i i intend i get up at quarter past five every day just because i like to do that Mm -hmm. but before i used to have to do that just so that i was up and ready in time with the rest of my family or anything to start a normal day then you get to the end of the day and you're exhausted but you can't just take a five minute shower you got to take your legs off. You got to clean them out. You got to charge them up. Then you got to go and shower. And you got to do everything with one hand. And you got to dry yourself with one hand. You know what I mean? It's like the last thing you want to do at the end of the day when you're exhausted. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm. I'm not boring, but I, I don't like going out late at night. And and because this is what people forget. Like we'll go back to a hotel 10, 11, and they'll just go. They'll be asleep. I've got like a 45 minute routine I've got to go through before I can go to sleep. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Like every day. So what's the, what speakers for you? What's your morning routine then? So I get up at quarter past five, mm-hmm. straight into meditation, like 10, 15 minutes. If I'm at home, I've got a little coffee machine underneath my wife's makeup desk, so I'll, I'll bang a coffee on. Then I would have planned my day out the night before generally. I, I try not to do this, but sometimes you can't help it, but I'll, I'll dive into my emails just to try and get ahead of the day a little bit. And then just go into my routine. You know, normally I tr- I like to train in the mornings. I don't like doing it in the evening. It's mm. just like, I don't know, it, ru- it feels like it ruins my day when you're like, oh, I've got to go at five, six. I just yeah. want to relax in the evening. I like That's be- us. Yeah. Well, like- more excuses come up, don't they, later in the day as well, so. Yeah, and I just like to get up in the morning and that's my time. Do you know what I mean? Whatever form of training I'm doing, that's that's me there. And then it's done for the day. And then everything else, no matter what happens in that day, at least you've done that. And then you can... You'll get through your day or fire foot through your day, whatever the kind of day looks like for you. And then rinse and repeat. You know, it's kind of boring when you talk about it, but it's effective because mm-hmm. I have so much going on now that I have to be efficient with my time and the way I do things. We, we were speaking about obviously the rehab process there and physically what you were having to do, but what what did you have to do mentally in, in that period? And was there things that you were consuming, not just for your body, but for your mind to be in a state mm-hmm. where you developed resilience and stayed motivated and stayed disciplined through that. Because I could imagine it's very easy to let those negative voices seep on and that little voice on your shoulder that chirps up every now and again, just saying, mm. just quit, just be, be mm. easy if you, if you give in. It, it, yeah, like every day. And I had a lot of temper tantrums going through rehab, especially because, you know, like I said earlier, I was the, the first guy to lose three limbs. So even though they had experience with people that had maybe lost two legs it's a completely different world when you've lost arms as well so that everything was just difficult and nothing was straightforward like even the most basic of things was so difficult and no one knew what to do and you know i lost my temper a lot 
Because I'm like, this is fucking bullshit. Why has no one sorted this out? Why is this so fucking hard? And threw my dummy out a lot. But, you know, my my pride in being a, in a, being a Royal Marine was one of the things that got me through. You know, it was actually quite early on when I was in hospital and you didn't have much to do but think when people weren't visiting you. And I don't know how much you know about the military, but the Royal Marines were first formed in 1664 and we've got quite a prestigious history. And I remember thinking about that history and thinking about how nobody that I'd ever heard of or read about in the Royal Marines was remembered for, for quitting anything. You know what I mean? And I'm like, well, I'm not going to be the first guy, you know, to let the team down. And then I was going to say this is an irrelevant part of the story, but it's, it's not for me. But back in like 2002, early in my career, I was, do you know what an RSM is? No. So he's a regimental sergeant major. So he's the highest ranking bloke in a unit uh, that isn't an officer. He's in charge of, of... So I was getting charged, which is towed off by, by the RSM because I'd been drunk and fighting that week. And I had my beret on. And one of his pet hates was when you... If you cut the black line out your beret. A lot of lads used to do it because it shaped better and looked better, but he hated it. So I was getting charged for fighting and he saw that my lining was out my berry so he took it off my head pinned it to his notice board made me run into town and get a new one and come back within an hour and uh i did that went about my business never really saw him again when i was in hospital he had been promoted to what's called the core rsm so the royal marines are, are a core and the core rsm is the most senior of all the rsms right so he's it's, it's the most senior of the most senior of the most senior that's not an officer and he came to visit me with the Commandant General, who was the most senior enlisted officer in the Royal Marines. And uh, I didn't think he'd remember me, right? Because I was just some young gobshite Marine, probably of hundreds that he'd towed off and charged for whatever it was they were doing. But he brought me in hospital a beret. And he went, I remember taking this off you, Marine Omrod. Here's another one for you. And that really oh, impacted wow. me. And I was like, how yeah. does a man that senior in the Marines, remember a little scrote like me. But my whole mindset flipped then. And this is when I was in hospital. And then I remember thinking, when I go to rehab, and I had not really worked in a tri-service environment before. I'd never really worked with the Navy, the Army, or the Air Force. In the Marines, you're kind of like insular a lot of the time. But rehab was tri-service. So I remember thinking, when I get there, I'm going to show everybody from every branch of the military what it means to be a Royal Marine. Like, not the tough physical side of it, but the mental side of it. Like I'm the first triple amputee. Nothing's been done. I've got this massive task on my hand, but I'm going to get it done because that's what we do. <clears throat> so despite the temper tantrums and throwing my dummy out my pram a couple of times, those were the things that kept me focused. And then having goals, you know? So my, my goal was, my first goal, my big one, was when we came... When my unit came back from Afghanistan, because they were still out there when I was in rehab, they had, I think, four weeks left, and then they come home and they go on 10 weeks leave to be with their families. After that 10 weeks leave, they go back to our camp, and we have a big, like, we call it a, a medals parade. So everyone will get individually presented their operational service medal from a VIP, and all the families and friends from all over the world come. So I set a goal that when that day came around, I was going to use prosthetic legs to walk, on the parade ground and stand next to the lads rather than get pushed on in a wheelchair, which is what they all expected. So I went into this, it was like a little bit of a hush-hush secret thing that I, we didn't want to tell anyone about. It was like a surprise on the day because I wanted to make some of our mates like fucking cry. 
<laughs> I've seen them cry in front of their mates and, and their families. Um, so when I did get my legs, you know, that was something that pushed me through every morning and getting up. You know, my, my sockets on my legs come up to my groin and they go around to, I'm going to get the name of it wrong, the ischial tuberosity, the like ass bone. Um, we'll go with that. Yeah. yeah. But it rubs a lot. So I'd get up every morning and I'd have like cuts on my groin, blisters on the end of my legs. My my entire alignment of my body shifts with prosthetics. So my, my lower back was always in pain. But because I'd set that goal and I had all these other things, these little mental tools in place, rather than just sitting in bed complaining and saying, I don't want to do anything today, that forced me to get up and to do a little bit more. And so I just kept pushing through the pain and, and all the minor injuries uh, until that day came around and was man was able to do it. You know, how, how long was that? How long did you give yourself? It sounds like you didn't give yourself. No, it was less than was, six months. Mm, yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. not a lot of time at no. all. It, it, and it was brutal. It was brutal. A lot of it was quite fun, you know, because I was surrounded by the men and women in similar situations mm -hmm. to me. So we had fun with it. But the, the advantage is the only word I'd use of, rehabilitating in the military is you get eight hours a day Monday to Friday so you you can advance quite quickly mm. whereas in the civilian world you wait about six weeks for a one hour appointment you spend 20 minutes putting your legs on 40 minutes walk and then get sent home for another six weeks so you can't ever make any progress mm. so I was quite lucky in that respect that I could just go at it every day and just keep making progress all the time did you make any of your friends cry oh yeah 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 loads of them loads of them yeah 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 it's I suppose I was going to ask you as well, how much did gratitude play a part in that? Because, I mean, a big thing for me is, uh, and I mean, it's in the most positive way possible, is, is downward gratitude and um, looking like how you're lucky in life to, to, to still have the things that you do and the things you do and the way that you're able to move and live. Um, and I guess for a lot of people, you will be a massive inspiration, a massive part of that. And one of the beautiful things that we get to do is speak to a lot of great people and hear stories, and they, they inspire us. I mean, even for my workout today, <clears throat> it was like probably one of the most horrible workouts of them for a while. I knew we had you on the podcast afterwards, and I was actually thinking about you during the workout, and I had that downward gratitude, which just inspired me to keep moving. I'm, mm. I'm one of those people who's very much motivated by not, uh, I suppose, what people have achieved, but more so what people have, have been through, and if those people have been through situations, then I can definitely get through this. Like, I've mm. just finished reading the book, uh, Make Your Bed. Maybe you've read it. Um, by Gerald MacArthur. Can, who's, can you pull up by, by Navy Seals? Yeah, Navy yeah, yeah, yeah. Seal guy. <clears throat> and I, I read the chapter each morning, and just think, God, some of the shit that I've just read, and some what these guys have been through. I can finish this hour long circuit or workout, and it, it pushes me, inspires me through. Yeah. Um, and even I think the the, the other week, <clears throat> I was down in the garage gym doing a bench press. I was like, it's cold, it's dark. I prefer to be sitting on the couch, watching something just doing bench press and I think I saw a video of you being fucking strapped to a bench with a band just to be able to sit on him press okay, with one yeah. arm I was again like fucking I can sit here and do a bench press yeah. like, it's those kind of things I think you may just do now that inspire other people all the time to continue what they're doing and moving through yeah so was there any how, how does gratitude play the part in, in your recovery and rehab it absolutely didn't in rehab not to the latter stages anyway. Um, but now it does like almost every day of my life. Because when when you're in something that intense, you don't really have a lot of time to think that way. You just kind of onto the next one, onto mm -hmm. the next one. But when things slow down 
and you can reflect. That's, I think, when I started to to bring gratitude in. Like my prosthetic legs, you know, I'm sat here on 80,000 pounds of a technology. I meet people that aren't military <coughs> that won't get access to this technology because it's so expensive. So, you know, I've got to be grateful for that. A part of the story I didn't say yet was when I, I went AWOL from the Marines in 2009 to fly to America to meet a mentor. He was a triple amputee. And they put me through like this insane three-week boot camp. And it was brutal. Like it nearly broke me. But the, you know, the gratitude I have for that, for those people, there was a team of people who gave up three weeks of their life, flew me to America to train me to be independent on prosthetics and not use a, I haven't used a wheelchair since the 9th of June 2009, the day I flew out to America. And how can you not be grateful for that? You know, they gave me my life back. I've had two more children since then. I can go to the beach with them. I do the school run with them. I go to there. All these things that, unless I sat here and bored you to death with how limiting it is to be in a wheelchair and use it with one hand, you can't do anything. You can't go on grass. You can't go on sand. You can't go out on your own unless it's an electric because you have to go left, right, forward, and back with one hand. Your shoulder just gets torn to pieces. But with prosthetics, while it's hard work, you can. it opens up another world. You know. So I travel the world on my own, drive on my own, can do any can train on my own, do everything on my own. I shouldn't be able to, but because I went to America and they had spent so in two thousand nine they had spent the previous six years with Cameron, who was the triple amputee, testing things, adjusting things, working out the systems, failing, learning, retrying. I went there for three weeks and literally absorbed six years of their work in three weeks and came home completely independent of a wheelchair. You know, how can you not be grateful for that? It's incredible. And that's why, you know, I came back and tried spreading that around to as many people as I could. That's why I do social media the way I do. It's not a, you know, look at me, look what I can do. It's the word I was thinking of just now when you were talking was perspective. You know, yeah. you're going to do your bench press and you don't want to do it. But then you saw a video of me doing it and it puts your life in perspective. I don't, I don't do it to go, yeah, look how fucking great I am. I don't care about that. Mm. It's, I understand and, I, and I'll tell you why. I'm sorry. All these stories keep coming out. Yeah, the right? Incredible. So I was in rehab feeling particularly sorry for myself. One of these times when I wanted to quit, I was, it was the closest I've ever come to just jacking it all in. And I had a friend called Dom. Now Dom's, Dom was a Royal Marine as well. His dad was actually one of my instructors in training, but Dom had been out to Norway. It's one of the places we go and do our training. We learn to fight and survive in the Arctic. And he was messing around and he jumped backwards into the snow to do a snow angel and snapped his spine and become a tetraplegic. So we were going through rehab together and we were having lunch and I was, I was really down, like really feeling like that's it, I'm done, just give me a wheelchair, I'm out. And I remember sitting there looking at Dom thinking, this guy's got both his arms and both his legs, but his legs will never work again. He's got limited mobility in his arms. I don't have any legs and I've got one arm, but I have prosthetics. So I can walk again. I can go up and down stairs again. I can go to the beach again. He can't do any of this shit. And I remember thinking to myself, if I start complaining to him now, if I was him, I would look back at me and go, you whiny little bitch. Like, all you got to do is put some effort in. Like, I'm never going to have the opportunities that you have. I'm tetraplegic. Like, I need carers for life. I can hardly lift my arms. My legs will never work. I've got people that have to bathe me and feed me. All you got to do is put some effort in. Who cares if you've got a few blisters and a few sores? They'll disappear. You know, put some cream on them, get some rest and go again the next day. That put my life in perspective. And I'm like, 
I mean, I never had that conversation with him and I never have, but that's the way my mind was working. It changed my perspective on on what, not on, not on fairness, like just my life, what, what life was and what it was going to be from that moment on. I knew I had a lot more freedom and a lot more opportunities if I was willing to put the work in. Yeah, I guess that, I mean, a lot of people moan about different things in life, but at some stage you've got to, you've got to play with the, the hand that you've been dealt. Mm. Um there's only two ways you can go with it I suppose but yeah even even if that wasn't your intention I think for a lot of people it does definitely in, inspire people mm. as a as a result of that and I, I guess that story's crazy as well the fact that the guy who's had his arms and legs blown off mm. is now more capable or able than someone who's still got all arms and legs intact but mm. speaking about the um the gratitude that you're having for the legs and I think you said they were 80,000 pound were they mm. You recently were in a situation where they were stolen. Yeah. Talk us through that. Yeah. Well, so those were my, my activity legs. So Okay, what's the, dif what's the difference for those? In price? In Just in terms of the capabilities and the purpose. and So the ones I use for activities, they don't have... This has got Bluetooth in, these ones. They've got CPUs. They've got tech. They, they, hook, they hook up to my phone. they got all this. They've got knee joints. Um, really? Yeah. But the other ones don't have any of that stuff. They're very, very basic. But they're the ones I use for like going to the beach and going in the ocean. You can't do that. You can do that on these, but you don't really want to. You get sand in the hydraulics and stuff. They're going to break. And these so, are the Bugatti of prosthetics. Th these ones are, yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah. Um, but the ones that got stolen were my activity. So they're, they're what I do like functional fitness in CrossFit. Mm. This is what I go to the beach in. This is what I go hiking in. Mm. It's what I do stuff around the house in. They're almost some of us uh, that have them use them like slippers. So we get them at the end of the day. You get a four millimeter Allen key, take it to my kneecap, undo two bolts, pull this leg off, slot that leg on both sides. And then you run around at like four feet tall or three and a half feet. But there's minimum risk of falling. You're a lot more functional because you haven't got to worry about your core stability and your balance. And they're actually, when you go from a wheelchair to full length legs, they're actually the best thing to spend about six months in to take your, your glutes and your core and everything to the next level. You know, rather than doing it from a plinth in a gym, you're now walking around everywhere. You're getting your cardio up, getting prepped for mm. full length legs. But yeah, they got stolen out of my car with a bag full of sweaty gym kit. Got it all back because I think whoever stole it realised it was completely useless to them and just ditched it in the back alley around the corner from the hotel. So I've got it all back now. Um, but it would have, I mean, it wouldn't have been the end of the world, but it would have restricted about 50% of my life until I got them replaced, which... You know, I'm very active. You know, I train yeah. every day and, and I, I need them, you know? I can't even imagine why you'd fucking want to take. That I mean, is ridiculous, yeah. yeah. Um, regarding how active you are, now when you're first learning to walk, that's a whole process in itself. That's the first hurdle. Where was it, because I know you've done the Invictus Games and you've gone on, you've done, you've done incredible things in sport. When you're learning to walk, where was the thing in your head being like, there's more, I can do more, I want to try disability sports, for example. Where was that mindset switch? Um, it wasn't a mindset switch as such. So in 2016, I was in my home office and I was I had like six bits of paper in front of me. And what I do in December is I scribble down all the, the shit in my head that I want to do the next year in just some random order. And I've got this routine that I go through and then you know, section all off, make it all neat and tidy. Then January the 1st, we go for it. And I realized that 
2017 was going to be my 10 year anniversary of being injured. So I wanted to do something that I hadn't done before. And I'd not done any sport. I was still training, lifting weights and that kind of stuff. But I, if I'm honest, detested the thought of adaptive sport. I thought it was very condescending, very belittling. I didn't understand it at the time. And I, you know, it was very hard for me to go from being a six foot two, 16 stone Royal Marines commando to someone that played sitting volleyball. Mm. It just, it didn't appeal to me. But I thought, you know, I haven't done any sport yet. I'm going to give this a shot. And I'd seen the, the games. They, they were two years old at this point. I had seen my friends compete in, I think it was London, the first one, then Florida. I'd seen some of them win medals, which was great. But because I knew them off camera, when, when the lights and everything were, were off, I saw what it did to their confidence. I saw how they reintegrated to their family. I saw how they wanted to go out and get a new career. And, and it gave them a part of their life back that they had potentially lost. So I thought, you know, I'll give this a shot. Not really thinking that I had any chance of making the team. 774 people applied. They had 72 places on the team. I had never done sport, wasn't in any of the cliques, didn't know anybody, but just thought I'd give it a shot anyway. Went to the uh, trials. Uh, I'm sure you guys have done this, but four minutes flat out on a Concept 2 rower. You know, I, I went blind. <laughs> uh, like the last the last 30 seconds all these stars started flashing in front of me and, and then my vision started to disappear like from the side in the last 15 seconds I did without being able to see but I was so wrapped up in my pride of people looking at me that I just carried on to the buzzer went got on my bum off the rower bum walked to the side to put my legs on and just thought what an idiot like you thought this was easy you thought you were just going to turn up and beat everyone <laughs> I didn't realise what how hard yeah. adapted, and that they were actual you know, professional athletes. Mm. So uh, I was fortunate enough to make the team. And then I just had to lock myself into this this routine because I had a full-time job at the time. So I had to get up at like five, do some cardio in my garage on the rower or my hand bike, go to work, do some S&C in the evenings. And then on the weekends, I had to travel all around the country to swimming camps, rowing camps, bike camps, athletics camps, and all these things. And actually learn these sports because I didn't know anything about them. I didn't know... Um, you know, I didn't really think you needed a strategy for rowing for four minutes, you know, flat out, but you do. Um, and it works. You know, I didn't really, I didn't think, I thought it was all just rubbish. I just thought I'd just turn up and go as hard as I can for as long as I can and I'll win. But I didn't. You know, I came back the first year, uh, two silvers and two bronzes, which I wasn't happy with. You know, my, my goal was to get gold medals. So I reapplied the following year. Again, th there's, the team shrunk at that point to about 65 people. So I thought, oh, you've got even less chance of getting on this team because I think there were another 700 plus people that had applied. But I got in again, uh, fortunately, and then went to Australia uh, with a completely different mindset. The way I approached all my training, everything was completely different mm. and then managed to get those goals. So it was, it was a two-year journey, but it was a, a lot of fun. It's unbelievable. Yeah, I think, it's incredible. I think I've heard you speak about this before in terms of maybe when you were in the Royal Marines about how you'd watched guys who were maybe fitter than you fail mm -hmm. tasks or tests uh, as maybe a testament to your mental resilience and determination. And we spoke about this before, how powerful that can be during certain situations. For, for people who maybe either lack some of that or would like to develop that further what would your advice be to, to increase them um, like mental resilience yeah 
Going, what would you tell them if they wanted to get bigger arms? Reps. There's no, there's no escaping it. I mean, you can read books, you can consume content, but and, and I, I don't know the the practical answer. You know, I could say go stand out in the rain for twelve hours in the wind and go walk for four hundred miles with a big pack on your back. You know, I, I don't know practically what the answer is, but you just got to expose yourself more often to difficult situations to develop that that mental muscle. And you're right. Like I was never the fittest, the fastest, or the strongest when I was going through training. There were 64 of us. I think it was 64 that started. And every single time we went for some sort of run or anything, I'll be in the last 10, every time. But when it came to being cold and wet and tired and hungry and sleep deprived, I could find humor in it where they couldn't. You know, and, and it was actually funny because some of the fitter people, I don't know why, but they would they would break quicker mm. i don't know if it's maybe they had less body fat or whatever it was but they seemed to get injured quicker they didn't like the cold they'd absolutely destroy me in physical tests but that's not what that's not all what it's about you know what i mean because if you're the fastest bloke in the troop and you get to the fight before everyone else you can't stop fighting until everyone else gets there anyway you know so you've it's, you have to just develop that that mental resilience and figure out what works for you was there any point in the Royal Marine training for you where you thought this is the day where I, I could throw in a towel or ring the bell? Every day. <laughs> was, there, was there anything in particular which you thought this is fucking pushing my limits, this activity, this event, this this day? All of it. Like, I, I, again, used to have a lot of temper tantrums going through training. Like, this is fucking bullshit. Why am I... Like, out loud, not in my head. Like, fucking just losing my shit. Cause it, and it's designed to do that. Like, every day it's just brutal. You know, you might get one or two days where they, they take the foot off the gas a little bit. But for me, my experience of it as a 17-year-old was that it was just like drinking from a fire hose. Like the information, the, the physical side of it, the the pace that you've got to do everything at. Like sometimes you had less than 15 minutes to eat and then you never walk anywhere in train. You've got to run everywhere and you're just feeling sick all the time and you don't get any sleep. You're up to like three in the morning ironing and then you're up again at six o'clock doing stuff. And it was just brutal. So every day I was like, this is bullshit. I want to go. And I only live 45 minutes away from where we do our training. So the temptation was real. Even like worse. just thinking I could be in my bed in an hour, just watching like cartoons or something and eating a pizza. <laughs> and it was so difficult. But, uh, you know, I what I did was the Green Beret. You know, in reality, it's a little bit of cloth, right? With a cat badge in it. But I had wrapped so much prestige around it from all the research I'd done and everyone I read about that... To me, it was like the ultimate prize. It was better than winning the lottery. And and I, I was able to project myself forward in my mind to the, to feel how it was going to feel to get it given to me. It was quite cool. I, I imagined it like almost like descending from heaven in a ray of light and placing itself perfectly on my head. In reality, this Welsh bloke in the store just went, Ormrod, and just threw it at me across the counter. <laughs> I was like, Redo is it. that it? Brilliant, thanks. But yeah, I just wrapped so much prestige in it and I could vividly see myself wearing it, that it just, it pulled me through a lot. With, with the support of, you know, my friends and people in my troop getting me through the times I was really struggling. Um, you know, I, I guess some people can't do that. But I also, you know, I had no plan B. Yeah. You know, I, I turned 18 halfway through training. I had no idea what I would do if I quit. Like I'd get on that train, with an hour I'd be home. I'd be embarrassed, sure, and that would probably wear off after a week or two. But then what was I going to do? 
you know, what were my options? I, I didn't have a plan. So I kind of had to stick to, to what I was doing and just push through it and day by day by day, just break it down to days, get through those days and eventually you get there. I think as well, visualization from what you said there, like imagining it, like going on your head and like the prestige and everything like that, visualization is so powerful. Mm -hmm. And I can imagine that is one of the things, even if it was subconscious at the time, that you've taken through when you're learning to walk, like when you're learning to walk again, I don't know if I'm putting words in your mouth, but you're visualizing like the first time you're walking again, maybe like in less pain, mm -hmm. or that's something you've actually completely taken with you from the age of six, 16, 16, 17? I applied at 16, started. went in at 17. Yeah, yeah I, I, I've done it a lot throughout my life with a lot of things I do. Like when, when it came to walking, because I looked up to Cameron so much, the, the triple amputee in America that mentored me, I used to watch what he did and then visualize myself. You know, when I got some quiet time in the evening when I was in America, you know, before bed, I'd visualize myself doing the things that he was teaching me to do. And it's, it's bizarre. It takes a little bit of time, but it, it develops some sort of connection, I think. And, and then when you can see yourself doing it, your body kind of just follows. Mm -hmm. Did the same with the Invictus Games. That first year I came back without gold medals, I gave my medals to my friend and he built a frame for me. It had a flag in the middle and he cut three slots out of the left and three slots out of the right. I didn't ask him to. And he put the silvers in the middle and the bronze at the bottom and left the two slots empty at the top. And I'm like, you prick. Like, <laughs> you know I can't hang that in my house. And I put it in front of my rowing machine. And you know you know what you said about your bench? But like, yeah. My garage is like a single skin and it is Baltic. And when you walk around places on your ass, excuse me, but when your nut sacks on the floor <laughs> and it's freezing, like every morning you're like, I don't want to do this. But like seeing that and imagining those gold medals going in there, I'm like... Nah, I'm not playing. I'm going to go and fill these gaps and then I can just chill. Um, yeah, so visualization is massive. I do it in jujitsu too. Mm. You know, I mean, I'm constantly visualizing things and moving a certain way and, and landing a certain submission. You know, it's, it's powerful. Yeah, the, the other thing I was just thinking then, we were speaking about Hoogman before, uh, he talks about something called the AMCC, okay. which, which is a part of the brain that uh, through repetitive exposure to doing hard, difficult things actually grows. I mean, yours must be like a fucking house brick at, th at this point, mm. but um, it's something that you have to voluntarily put yourself through and persevere through. So I guess for like the everyday listener, it'll be like adhering to a diet or a training program, mm. putting yourself through pain to continue to grow that. And then there's a feedback loop within there where once you put yourself through pain, you get that little bit of pleasure and mm -hmm. that experience from the end of doing something or, or winning something as well. I mean, apart from the crazy challenge that you've been also doing with the was the hundred mile bike ride and the mm -hmm. world record for the swim. Mm -hmm. What other challenges do you put yourself through? Or what is there anything you're forward thinking about at the moment in terms of challenges that continue to to push you? Yeah, I'm in a completely different season of my life now and chapter, and I'm very focused on on business. You know, I've spent the last sixteen years either fundraising or you know, I've had a full-time job for 10 years, but now I, I don't have a job. So I need to figure out ways to, to earn an income and earn a living. And it's all new to me. You know, I joined the military straight out of school. So now with various certain things, I, I visualize what success financially looks like for me. Do you know what I mean? Where I want to be, what, what the figures look like, what the lifestyle looks like, you know, that kind of stuff. The, the, the older I get, the more I look at the old nine to five model and realize how it's not for me. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I could go and get a job 
tomorrow easy. I've got a bunch of friends that own companies who would probably give me a job, but I want the challenge of trying to figure all this out myself, of, of doing, you know, I'm, I'm 40 years old, but I see 12 year olds earning millions on YouTube and I'm like, <laughs> damn it. Like I need to figure that out. So, you know, the next 10 years of my life are dedicated to that now is, mm. is kind of like looking after my family financially, building businesses, but having fun while I'm doing it. You know what I mean? Mm. So and I do spend a lot of time. I'll drive back home now. I've got all my, my books lined up and I generally listen to like an hour and then I spend half an hour in silence, just driving, thinking about stuff and visualizing stuff and planning stuff and taking a note with my uh, got a little voice button on my steering wheel where you can dictate notes into your phone and that's clever Ro yeah rogan's a lot of that i Does need he? that i yeah. think of all the he's stuff got like one of those little float pods i think at home a i think he's got like a voice um what they call dictator yeah and he yeah. just it in those i think these are important as well having those like sort of non-actionable spaces where you're not really doing anything yeah. or consuming anything at the time uh and often he'll kind of spit ideas or things for comedy or things for podcasts that yeah. you're thinking about that just come into your brain on a whim that sometimes you may forget about so yeah, good, yeah, yeah, you have to. I was doing it before I came here in that car park around the corner. Uh, I had my hat put over my head. I had a, a thing on my phone from YouTube, just zoning everything out and just letting it almost like my brain purge. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Mm. Just to get all the... Because the, I've been on my phone for like four hours, firefighting emails, DMs, mm. social media posts, action items and everything. And I just needed like 20 minutes just decompress before coming here. And then things pop in your mind. You know, it's, it's a it's a powerful powerful thing to do but with so many distractions nowadays it's hard to, to discipline yourself to do it you said one of the things so i'm just jumping back from your morning routine is meditation mm -hmm. i've tried meditation before i've got a very busy brain it, it makes me feel quite stressed i think because i do have so much going on my it makes me when i'm sat in calm and there's nothing going on i really struggle mm. and it's something i'm trying to work on before your accident did you ever do meditation or anything like that was this a new Complete, thing yeah. that you picked up completely new yeah yeah i never did anything like this before um never really even picked a book up before mm. i was very much you know what's happening now i don't go to school anymore so i don't need to read anymore and it wasn't until i, I don't know what point it was again it's, it's another story but I, I read a tony robbins book uh there were two i can't remember what they're called i think it was awaken the giant within and one was green and one was red. Anyway, it led me down this path of, I got, I went to do a, a speaking engagement on the outskirts of London and I got speaking to the guy afterwards, Darren. And I said, I read these books and he just, you couldn't make it up. He pulled this folder out from under the table and it had all these courses that he'd been on through Tony Robbins. And then he went out, called up the directors of his business and they bought me a ticket to go to this three day seminar in, in the O2. So anyway, I went to that and then I had studied NLP up to this point. So I knew a lot of the stuff that he's doing when he gets you in like this hyped up mode. And then you, you just quite, you know, what's the word? When you, you're easily led, mm -hmm. right? Cause you're like hyped up and, yeah. I, and I knew what was coming, like the big upsell for the next course, but I had access to money through the military, what I could use for education. So I went on this next course, which was out in Spain. Then when I was out on that course, I, I was asked to go on stage and tell my story for a bit, went to the toilet and the 200 people in the room all put money in a pot and paid for me to go to the next course. So I went to the next oh, wow. course 
and I'm still having a pee and there's like this guy is like seven foot tall and I can feel him we're at the urinals and I can feel him like willy watching and I'm like <laughs> super uncomfortable so anyway I leave get outside and he grabs me and uh, he was a retired army guy in America and he was part of this group within these these uh, seminars and courses they pay like 60 grand a year to be part of an elite group and they, they all get VIP at anyway his mates then paid me to go on another course. So I got like 45 grand's worth of wow. these courses for nothing. Like, and, and that's what set me on this journey. Then I would, you know, you read his books and you find out about the next bloke and the next bloke and the next bloke mm -hmm. and you go down these other rabbit holes. And then I started kind of curating my social media to have these people's content in front of me rather than, you know, Tracy down the road, whinging that a washing's been yeah. blown off the line. Mm -hmm. I've got Zig Ziglar or, you know, whoever it is with their content popping up in front of me. And then I'll go and grab a book that they've written and I'll read that and then take notes from that. And, you know, you you take what's useful to you from these things, right? And then the rest of it might come back in later in life, maybe not. But I, I did go through a phase when I, I was getting a bit stressed, like I should be learning all this, implementing all this, knowing all this. And then I was like, oh, I don't need to know it all because mm -hmm. we've got different paths, we're on different journeys. Uh, and that set me off on that route. And now, you know, I, consume a lot of empowering content that's going to help me in whatever it is that I'm doing in life. And uh, I always try and encourage other people to do the same. You know, I, I travel a lot and people are always, you're always in the car, you're always driving. But that's when I listen to books and I learn stuff. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's not, I'm not sat there listening to the Spice Girls, <laughs> not all the time. <laughs> um, I'm learning. And for me, it, I find it difficult to sit in a room and maybe listen to a, a book or read it. But when I'm driving, I don't know what it is about driving, but I'm focused. Yeah. And and I take so much more in when I'm on my own, just cruising. And the time flies by. And then I'll get home. You know, I finished deep work yesterday on the way up. And now I've got uh, a book that I just started this morning uh, by a guy called Rob Moore. It's about procrastination called, I think it's called, Start now, get perfect later. Mm -hmm. So that'll be done by the time I get to Plymouth. That's two books in two days. And then I just keep repeating the process and just learning. How do you find it implementing stuff? I mean, I'm a big, I'm big on that because I think just uh, like your diet, if you consume shit, you're going to be mm -hmm. overweight, unhealthy, unfit. The same with your mind in terms of the things that you consume mm -hmm. and the things that you feed it with are then going to shape your outlook and shape the way that you are and what you take on board. How do you find action in some of this? Because we... I often speak to people who struggle with that, like they have a bookshelf full of fucking books, mm. but then they never action anything. They're just constantly consuming. Yeah, that does take discipline. You know what I mean? But I guess you've got to know what it is you want because you can read all the books in the world about generically about personal development. But if you're not aiming for anything particularly, then how are you going to know what to take and what to take action on? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So... You kind of need, that's why now what I said about next 10 years is business. I'll consume more content focused around money and wealth and business and, you know, niche down into the areas where I want to earn from like social media, membership sites, podcasts, that kind of stuff. And then just, I know where I am in my journey. So I'll know what will be useful to me. And then when I think it's a lot easier to take action once you've already started and if you know where you're going and what's going to help, then you can take action easier. Does that make sense? Yeah. I also think as well from what you said before, when you had all these courses and you were doing this, doing this, and we find a lot we speak about on the podcast where you're then, you're trying to surround yourself with people who are, 
who are better, yep. who are more successful, who, however you deem success, whatever it is, very personal on the person, but surrounding yourself, people who are faster, who are fitter, mm-hmm. who make more money, who have multi-million pound businesses, mm-hmm. we we do, we try and do that like actively because I think it's important to be around people who are better than you and you shouldn't be the best person yeah. in the room. From what you were saying before, I was like, that's that makes a lot of sense. It, yeah, I think you. Can... There's, there's two sides to that. I think. So I've I've just and please don't think I'm some sort of moron that didn't do any research or have just made a decision on a whim. But I've just dropped five and a half grand to be in a WhatsApp group, right? But it's full of people, yeah. forty five people plus an extremely successful mentor who I have access to twenty four hours a day. Mm-hmm. I've already got more than five and a half grand worth of value from that group already, and I'm in it for a year, and I get four like five live events. You know what I mean? It's insane. But I wanted to be the dumbest person in the room. But then the flip side of that is, you know, the mentor that started it, he's the smartest guy in that room. Mm. You know, that I think I think he did like 200 grand in, in the day from that WhatsApp group. It's insane. That's but, insane. And I want to learn how to do that. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And so the invest, it, I look at it as an investment. It's not an expense. I haven't wasted or spent money. I've invested five and a half grand in my knowledge, in my network and in my future. So I'm more than happy to, mm-hmm. to spend that. It, it, when I did do it, I did get a bit of a feeling in my gut, like, what have you done? Mm-hmm. But then two days later, I'm like, damn, this is like gold. Is What these people are saying and telling me and just even reading through the messages and just picking bits out, I'm like, that saved me months of research, you know, stuff I haven't got time to look into. I can just ask direct questions mm-hmm. and get an answer within 24 hours. And it saves me probably in the year that I'm going to be in that group, it's probably going to save me five years of work and research yeah. and, and mistakes to be in there for five and a half grand. I think that's well worth yeah, yeah. it. Yeah, well, you're paying for the people's learnings, aren't you, as yeah. well? And you're paying for that that access. And, and the network and, and all of it. And also you get that accountability of, I've just fucking paid five and a half K, so I need to put yeah. these things into action. I think whenever you get a feeling like that of a bit of twitchy bumhole where you're thinking, mm. shit, I, I don't know, I should have done that. You should. I, I think they're the ones that, that's the kind of confirmation of, Mm-hmm. It's probably the right decision because you look at anyone who's successful, they've just taken risk over and over and over again and learn quickly from mm. whatever failures come along that way. Yeah. And and if I, you know, got a month, two months, or got to the end of 12 months and I was like, well, that was a waste of money. Well, you know, it's a five and a half grand lesson that I'm not going to repeat. You know what I mean? So either exactly. way you slice it up, you've got some value from it. It might just be an expensive lesson, but. Yeah, I think it's one of the best things I've done for a long time. And I've been meaning to do it for ages. I live in Plymouth and, you know, there's not a lot of networking and that goes on down there to take me to where I want to be. Yeah. I have to be in London or other places in the world. And, you know, with a WhatsApp group, I can do that. Yeah. Mm. One of the one of the other things I want to ask you about, because obviously there's been, I suppose, different timelines within your life where things have changed drastically. Um. And it was around identity when there's kind of mm-hmm. this, this this change going on. And one of my friends, Chris Williamson, spoke about this uh, quite often recently. And it's about how identity lags reality by sometimes two to three years. And obviously with that whole rehab process and things that were changing through, did did you feel it was a, a big change in identity as you were, you were moving from those two stages? And, and did you feel that almost when you were going through it? I felt I lost my identity when I first got injured, because everything I identified with was physical. You know what I mean? It was about oh, okay. how fast I was, yeah. strong I was, the job I did, the the prestige that was wrapped around that job. And all of a sudden I'd gone from, like I said earlier, six foot two, 16 stone, Royal Marines commando at 
probably close to the peak of my, my physical abilities to a three and a half foot, eight stone, 11 triple amputee. And it all been whipped away from me in a nanosecond. So I completely lost my identity in the beginning. And it was strange because over the weeks and months where I got a little bit more comfortable with stuff, I could go anywhere in the country, but struggled to go home. And I think that's because everyone that I grew up with knew me before mm. and I didn't want them to see me after. Whereas when I was going to other places in the country, I probably never met people before. So they just seen this guy in a wheelchair, you know, in the early days with no legs and an arm, you know, meeting me with no no judgment. Whereas when I went home, you know, I, I before I was injured, I was a, a bodyguard. I worked nightclub doors. I competed in kickboxing, Muay Thai, box for the Marines. Everything was physical, physical, physical. And I found it hard to go back and almost just be this embodiment of what I thought then was just weakness, just sat in a wheelchair. Because you received validation for so long for being that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. And then you just, they're, they're like, oh, Mark's coming. Quick, say some nice things so he feels good. And it was so hard just, just to go home. You know what I mean? But eventually, once the, once I understood that the mind was as important or if not more important than, than the body with stuff and I started to retrain the way I thought, became a lot easier. You know what I mean? Do you know what it was interesting when you were saying that then about people around saying, saying say something nice, mm. Mark's coming. How, I'm trying to think of the question, to raise this question, how, how does that feel? And the, the, re, the thing, that my logic behind it is that was it tough things that people need to say, say to you that didn't? Or how, how did family, I suppose, give you comments or give you feedback or give you motivation? Because I sometimes think about this with things that go on in life. And it's, for me, for example, if I got really out of shape and fat, I'd like Lucy to tell me, oh, Ben, you look a bit fat. But she might not want to tell me because she loves me. But I'd rather her tell me than someone else in the real world, 12 weeks down the line, go, you're, you look like a fat kid. I'd rather mm. be told now. Uh, and that's like tough love and care that sometimes need to be given mm -hmm. to people, which I think in a modern world, we often mm -hmm. shy away from. So how did that fit, feel in that moment? And how did loved ones, I suppose, give you that? I don't think he needed to. You know, it's a bit of a boring answer, but I was pretty motivated from the minute I came out of hospital just to be independent. So I never really, you know, I don't drink. I didn't go down that rabbit hole of, of drinking and boozing all the time and, and drugs or anything like that. I was always focused on the positive and, and the next thing, which is what drove me on just to keep moving forward. Um, I didn't really have much in my life where anyone had to grip me and say, you're drinking too much or, or you're getting, I, I mean, I did get fat because of the medication I was on. And when, as soon as I realized that I ditched it all overnight, like instantly gone, like 18, 18, I was having 18 for breakfast, 18 for dinner and 18 for tea, like pills. To, for medication for so the pain. Still rattling through the day. Yeah, and it was horrible. Yeah, I couldn't. Right. I couldn't think straight. You know, I, I remember staring at the the corner of the TV, not the actual screen, just the corner, the plastic bit, having a conversation with myself once. And then when I finally snapped out of it, three hours had gone by, and I was like, Whoop, I need to get rid of this because. And I, I would have conversation with people, and someone would be talking to me, and I'd be looking at them and like in their face, acting like I'm paying attention. And in my mind, I'm like, this dude needs to trim his nose hair. <laughs> like I've had these conversations <laughs> in my mind and I just couldn't focus. Yeah. So I just got rid of all that. And uh, yeah, just, and it 
you know, I'm not a doctor. You know, I don't give medical advice, but that worked for me. Like yeah. literally woke up next day, no pain, next day, no pain, next day, no pain. So I was like, okay, I don't need that. Mm. Brain started to clear up a little bit, started to lose weight. So it was a positive thing for me. So yeah, I mean, there, there weren't really, I never really went down, down mm -hmm. where anyone had to grip me and give me any tough love or anything like that. Um, I think I'm just a bit, I, I think because I had great support yeah. from many different places, you know, and that's what kept me on the straight and narrow. But then probably also credit yourself from being in the Royal Marines and doing the training and building those calluses and building that callous mind. And even though at the time you might not even fathom that, but you've probably put in so much work over the years, like mm. your your mental capacity and your physical capacity. So when it's hit you, I think a lot of people would like completely do what you said and just lose lose their mind a little bit. Whereas you're like, nope, that's not for me. Done. But you've you've kind of built that up over the years. I have, but I also make sure that I'm around other people like that as well. Mm. Yeah, and and <laughs> I'm quite brutal now with like who I spend my time with. I've got zero tolerance for what I call morale vampires who just suck the life out of any room. Yeah. You know, and and the advice I give to anyone is, you know, be brutal about who you surround yourself with and who you spend your time with. And if it's difficult to just cut people out of your life completely because maybe they're family or very close friends, just limit the time you spend with them. And I, or, I live in Plymouth. It's quite a big military city. 99% of my friends are veterans and they're all of a similar mindset to me. You know, my coach in the gym is a physical training instructor from the Royal Marines. My jujitsu coach is a physical trainer from the Royal Marines. I hang around with a lot of special forces guys. We've all got that kind of similar mindset where we don't we don't hang around with people like, oh, let's just have a, a McDonald's at 11 o'clock on a Tuesday morning. I'm like, nope, yeah. nope, yeah. that's reserved for Friday night, Saturday night. You know what I mean? A treat. I don't I don't hang around people like that. Um, and I sound, I sound really judgmental, don't I? But no, no, no we, we spoke about a lot. We, with we, the, we, we speak about it heavily. I think we read the book Essentialism. Yeah, yeah. I listened to that kind, one, yeah. That's kind of like uh, follows similar ethos in terms of protecting your time and making sure that you control your life before someone else does because you continue to say yes rather than no. And that's something that's mm. built into our DNA through evolution of when we had tribes and things like mm. that. You would often say yes just to be part of the tribe yeah. so you didn't die where we don't need that in today's society. So we need to say no more often, which can be... Yeah, can be difficult. Mm. Yeah, but yeah, you just got to get a, a decent tribe around you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. With with that change in identity, then what? How did you have to change the metric stick that you used to measure? Once before, it was physical strength, power, endurance, and that was where you would, I suppose, and a lot of us do seek or or we get our validation from. What did you have to change the the metric stick to measure moving forward? Then with this change in identity, or did you? I mean, it, it was still a little bit like that with the, the, the adaptive training and stuff. But I, I just, I did so many different things in such a short space of time. You know, I spent a good couple of years just in a whirlwind, like never reflecting, never looking back, never measuring and, and seeing where I was and where I was going. But then every once in a while, you'd get that little bit of downtime where you could reflect. And... Uh, you know, it might sound a bit corny, but you know, I sat there sometimes feeling quite proud of myself. I'm like, I've got freedoms missing, but I'm still holding down a full-time job. I'm still training. I'm still keeping myself fit and active. I was fundraising a lot, so I'm still contributing to society. I'm still helping people where I can help them. More children came along, so I'm still raising a family. I'm doing all the things 
that I would do if I was able-bodied, but I'm doing it with three limbs missing. And uh, I felt quite proud of that. Do you know what I mean? Because most of it was like a mindset and then just molding things mm. and, and your life and tweaking and adjusting them so that they were achievable for, for me in, in my situation. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And so you should, you should be proud of it. I think people sometimes feel really awkward when they're saying they're proud of mm. something, but it shouldn't, it shouldn't feel that way. It shouldn't be an awkward thing. It's not egotistical. It's not vain. It's just, mm. I've done this and I've achieved this and I'm really proud of it. And then this is, this is what's next. Mm. Cause that's what we spoke about quite a lot in this podcast is surrounding yourself with those people who are like, yeah, like you've done an amazing job. You should be so proud of yourself. So yeah, I would give yourself a lot of credit. Mm. <laughs> it's funny in, in the military, you know what a Victoria Cross is? No. no. So a Victoria Cross is a medal. It's the it's the highest medal you can get for gallantry. Mm. So you basically run into an enemy position with machine guns firing at you to save a life, putting your own life at risk. There are very few people that get them that are still alive. They normally get awarded posthumously. And in the military, and this is a bit tongue-in-cheek, but you could win a Victoria Cross and you could be with the lads and be like telling the story and they're like, shut up, mate, you're boring. Like they're the highest medal you can get, right? For Gallantry. And they'll, they'll just bring you back down. They'll be like, yeah, you've told us we're bored. What are we doing next? So you kind of you yeah. kind of take that mentality with you. It's like, okay, I've done that. Mm. Great. It was good for five minutes. Let's not harp on about it. Let's go on to the next thing. Yeah. Let's see what we yeah, can do I, next. I enjoy it. I like that kind of camaraderie. Mm. I think it works well, well for me as well. Um, the, the one thing I want to finish off asking you as well is, I suppose, around identity. What was it like and what was the thoughts that were going through your head the first time, I suppose, you were able to get out of bed and see and stand in front of a mirror and mm. see what was looking, you looking back at yourself for the first time? So I always get asked this, like, were there any low points in my recovery? And, and I'm very honest when I say it, and there were two. One was what I told you about with the doctor. Mm -hmm. And the second one was about a week after that, the first time they let me out of hospital. And my family were staying across the road in a flat. And uh, it was a, like a tower block. And they pushed me over in a wheelchair. And the chair went through the communal entrance. It went through the front door of the flat. But I couldn't access any rooms because my wheelchair was extra wide on one side for one-handed. Mm -hmm. So I had to sit in the hallway and, and eat my dinner while everyone was around the telly. I had to piss in a milk bottle because I couldn't get in the toilet. But eventually at night, I was allowed to stay in the flat overnight with my, my wife. Uh, we figured out that if you, you almost pick me out of the wheelchair like a baby, collapse the wheelchair, put it in a room, pull it open, put me back in, I could get in and out of these rooms temporarily while I was there. And so that night, that's what happened. And in hospital, you know, I brushed my teeth and shaved in it and like a, from the neck up in a mirror above the sink, but I'd never seen myself in a full-length mirror. But in this room in the flat, there was a full-length mirror. And I rolled past it in my chair and looked at myself and... I was about, I think, eight stone 11, obviously because of the limb loss, but also the infections I was fighting off and everything like that. My, my cheekbones were poking out. I was I was gaunt and withdrawn. The arm of my jumper that I had almost like flapping, you know, just hanging off. And the, the ends of my legs were poking out of my shorts. And I just looked at myself. And, and I've got no shame in saying this. I spent the whole night crying that night with Becky in, in this flat because I didn't recognize myself. And it was a shock to, to see like, having gone from a, a guy that wore like tight t-shirts and was muscular and 
you know, fit and healthy and tall and strong to being almost like a skeleton with, with a bit of skin on, just destroyed and, and in pieces in front of this mirror. And it, this was quite early on. It was like less than two months before I was the old me. And now here I am at 24 years old facing the rest of my life like this. And I just cried all night. Just cried all night, purged it out, got up the next day, felt better, and then went back at it again. So, um, you know, I think there's a lot a lot of power in having a good cry and a, and a yeah. chat and talking to people. We, Me and Becky talked all night, and uh, she got me through that. And then, like I said, we got the next day. I'm like, right, that's it, done, dusted, let's go. And we just moved on. But that's the only two times mm -hmm. in, in the whole rehabilitation process where I, I hit rock bottom. Everything else was just set a go, show me the way, let's go. It's an unbelievable mindset, mate. I know, I know you don't need smoke blowing up your ass, but I know the, the accomplishments that you've gone on to receive and win post this event, it's just unbelievable from the challenge that you've done to the world records, the MBEs, and uh, to the cross. But for, for me, it's even aside from those, it's just watching the things that you do day to day and the challenge that you take on, the exercise, the train that you do, the shit that I suppose a lot of people wouldn't Take be able to see or see for social media yeah, it's the it's the kind of the bit below the the tip of the iceberg that i really enjoy seeing the things that it even impacts my life and inspires me today mm -hmm. so i suppose from us thank you for for continuing to do that and inspire other people and also coming to share your story with us today as well because i'm sure it will inspire mm -hmm. a lot of our listeners who are tuning in this week as well well thank you guys for having me up i appreciate it You're and just welcome. for everyone who is listening where can they find more of you and then I know you mentioned a bit of like charity work if you wanted to share that as well yeah I'm on all, all the social media platforms Instagram TikTok X all those uh, so you can follow me there pretty much daily I haven't got anything locked in fundraising wise yet but I will have and then that'll be on my social media too so come find me amazing, amazing. Thanks, thanks to everyone who's tuned in this week who's been listening and watching. If you've got any questions, please feel free to drop them on the YouTube channel. Please make sure to continue to leave reviews because it massively helps us moving forward. Um, and please obviously tag me, Lucy and Mark in any of this week's stories that you're uploading. Thank you guys. We'll catch you next week. Bye guys. <laughs>